This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. From the campus of the University of Pennsylvania Wharton School, this, this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio. Here's your host, Christian Tervish. Welcome to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Warden School. I'm your host, uh, Christian Tevish, and we're here for you every Monday night at 5 p.m. Eastern, as well as by replays for, uh, throughout the week. The purpose of this show is to explore how work will change in times of globalization and digitization. We want to understand of what the work of tomorrow will look like. In each show, I will talk with experts and leaders from a specific industry and get their insight on what is happening today and how things are changing in the future. Now, that gets us to today's topic. Uh, There are some jobs that every boy or girl dreams of uh, for their own future. I guess ice cream testing and aircraft piloting are probably high on that list. In my view, the only thing that tops all of those is being a professional athlete. For us Germans, Boris Becker, Jürgen Klinsmann, or Dirk Nowitzki are the heroes of our childhood. And there is absolutely no shortage of great American uh, athletes. But increasingly, sports mastery is just not happening on the sports field or race course, but on the PlayStation and the Xbox. Professional gamers are filling arenas, and e-games were showcased in the last Olympic Summer Games. So today's shows, we want to understand the future of professional sports, both in the real stadium and in the virtual one. To help us explore this topic, I have uh, two wonderful guests. Seth Rabinowitz is the director of fan engagement at the New York Jets. And uh, then in the second half of the show, I will talk to Kyle Bautista, vice president and general manager of Complexity Gaming. Uh, Let the games begin. Welcome, Seth. Uh, Thank you. Thanks for having me. So, Seth, uh, this is a dream job that you have there, director of fan experience. Tell us how, how you got into that. Well, I've been involved with professional football one way or another for more than 20 years, so dating back to the mid-1990s. I worked at the league office, the NFL headquarters office in New York City for uh, a number of years uh, in a wide variety of responsibilities, including business development, strategic planning, international and marketing. And then eventually I had an opportunity to join the Jets. So now uh, I oversee both the traditional marketing activities of the team as well as all the fan engagement, the I guess you could call me the executive producer of the show on Sundays at our home games, so the cheerleaders and the fireworks and the uh, music and the halftime shows and the national anthems and all those sorts of things. So uh, it's been a variety of responsibilities and assignments in uh, professional football dating over 20 years. What has changed over these 20 years? If you compare a great evening in the stadium today with one maybe 20 years ago, uh, what is for you the biggest increase, uh, the biggest innovation or the most rewarding new experience? Well, I think the thing that has changed continuously really at the stadium is the access to information from the outside world. So it used to be way back before my time that if you wanted to know what happened, at an NFL game, but at most sport, sporting events. If you wanted to know what happened in real time, you needed to be there. And, you know, there's many famous uh, moments in sports history that were seen on TV only on tape delay. And, uh, you know, so it's not even that far, that long ago, that really if you wanted to know what was happening play-by-play play, and certainly in real time, you needed to be there at the venue. And then slowly the tide began to turn so that the people at home or outside the venue actually had more information because they were aware of all the other games going on simultaneously, and that's a particular challenge in our business because so many games are played concurrently at 1 o'clock on Sunday afternoons. 
so then, uh, ironically, the people at home had more access to information, and that became very important with the rise of fantasy sports and so on and so forth. So the, the pendulum had swung the other way, and now what we've done over the last decade or so is start to re-equalize and then re-advantage the in-person experience at the venue with more information. So we've neutralized the information disadvantage now at MetLife Stadium at a Jets home game. You, you know, we have a tremendous Wi-Fi network. You can be as connected as if you were on your living room uh, easy chair. And so you'll have all the information about out-of-town scores and fantasy statistics and all of that kind of stuff. And now we're really pioneering new forms of information that are, again, only available at the stadium, including what we call next-generation statistics, which is a variety of stats flowing from sensors that are actually in the equipment that the players wear on their bodies. Uh, and some of that's showing up on TV, too, but we're, uh, at least at the Jets, taking full advantage of that and recognizing that as an opportunity to kind of swing the pendulum back toward uh, advantaging the in-person experience. So it really has been this kind of ebb and flow of football fans, sports fans generally have an insatiable appetite for information. They want to know everything that's going on. And increasingly they want to know everything about their team but all the other teams because everybody's connected and it all it all feeds on itself. And so um, that access to information really has been and continues to be sort of the core strategic challenge that we're addressing. Tell us more about this new form of connectivity, right? There's a, there's a one form that I'm I'm sitting here in Philadelphia and want to figure out the, 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 the how, how the game in New York is going. But, uh, you know, that that is, I think... Uh, technologically fairly simple, pardon the wording, but what you're describing right now seems to me like really amazing engineering technologies with sensors embedded in yeah. shoes and helmets. What's the status quo there? Well, it's evolving quickly. So this has been something the NFL has been developing for probably five years or so, and it's really now just kind of hitting its stride, and now the data streams are being uh, exploited for kind of you know, fan-facing use cases. Uh, a lot of this stuff started from the sports performance side of things where coaches and trainers and so forth were curious about the performance of the athletes both during games but then uh, equally important in practice and they were concerned just to, to monitor their performance and also to measure their health and you know how were their their performance over time uh, but now that they've kind of perfected these technologies this data is starting to flow and teams like the jets are finding ways to ingest that data and present it in very interesting ways to fans basically in real time and we're lucky at MetLife Stadium. We have four very large uh, video boards, so we're, we kind of deploy two of the four to what we call pilot vision, which is sort of, if you can imagine, almost the equivalent of having your tablet on your lap while you're sitting at home. We have four video boards, so two are the equivalent of the television, and the other two are kind of the equivalent of the tablet. And so on that tablet-like experience is where we're presenting all of this ancillary information. And so we're able to do things like speed and acceleration. We're able to show the the physical path that a runner ran to break free for a big touchdown. We're able to show the distribution of passing plays that a quarterback's been doing, you know, by completion percentage, all sorts of different ways to slice and dice the data. Um, but it all stems from knowing the, you know, position and physical space of each of the players and the ball uh, in real time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very significant step forward for us. Um, and again, it's stuff that you're seeing on television as well, but we're really trying to use it to an extent that you're getting a lot more in venue than you would on, on TV. I guess there is another element of the fan experience, which has, has to do with the amenities of the stadium and having yeah. a, having something to drink or to eat. Um, how is that? Uh, how is that changing? Is, is is technology 
leverage in that part of the connectivity. We have had an earlier show with uh, Disneyland talking about their magic band as a way of enhancing the guest yeah. experience in theme parks. Where do you see uh, the kind of the top of the line stadiums in this country head there? Yeah, it's following the same path for sure. I don't know if they'll ever have the resources that Disney had for the magic band, which is an incredible uh, technological and marketing achievement. Uh, but we're we're barking up the same trees. So we have uh, we also use RFID and near field uh, technology to for access control. So uh, our stadium is fully enabled for Jets games for uh, uh, paperless entry, and uh, our season ticket holders have uh, season ticket cards, and now can also use mobile uh, to enter. Uh, starting next year, we'll be able to accept payments through contactless uh, across our entire stadium, over a thousand uh, points of sale. Um, so. For sure, we're following those, you know, those same paths. And I think, you know, with the kind of, with respect to the amenities, it's very interesting. Some things have changed a lot, and some things have changed not at all. And that is kind of, I think, also a theme about sports, because, you know, you started asking me what's changed. You could have also asked the question, what hasn't changed? And a lot, honestly, hasn't changed. It, 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 with respect to the amenities, you know, you've seen an incredible upgrading of the food, the beverage, and all of these things at stadiums. And... Uh, you know, there's really almost fine dining now at stadiums. But no matter what new and gourmet uh, offering we present, the number one seller is still a hot dog, by far. And so there's some things, and we ask people, because when we ask them what they want to eat, they tell us they want all the fancy uh, food, but then sure enough, they revert back to buying the hot dogs. And so we ask them, we say, hey, you told us you wanted the uh, filet mignon sandwich, but it turns out you bought the hot dogs. And they say, ah, you know, whenever I go to the ball game, I just feel like I want a hot dog. And so there are traditions, and there is one of the amazing thing about, things about sports is the kind of the past, the present, the future sort of all exist in one moment, and there's incredible continuity, multi-generational continuity. And so with respect to the amenities, people say they want things, but they also revert back to the tried and true, the comfortable, and that's true with the, with the experience to, you know, in general. So we had a home game yesterday. It was an exciting game, back and forth all game, and thankfully in the end the Jets prevailed. You won, right, against Kansas? Yes, we won, you know, it's, uh, exciting, very exciting in the final minutes of the game. And um, we had some games earlier in the season where we were on the other side of that where we unfortunately lost the game in the fourth quarter. This time we were able to pull it out. And so the kind of collective passion and excitement and the, just the emotional release of being there together and experiencing that in a stadium full of thousands and thousands and thousands of people that hasn't changed since you know i guess the the first olympics and the greeks or whatever i mean that's been the reason people went since the beginning of organized sports competitions and yes you can have the greatest wi-fi network and yes people can be understanding what's happening at other teams and out-of-town scores and their fantasy players but the essence of what we offer is still that shared experience and the also putting that game in the context of people who've been following the jets for decades uh, and sharing the passion and the tradition and the kind of continuity in their life amid so many other things changing, that this is one source of stability in their lives. I think that that hasn't changed. I don't foresee that changing in the future. I think all these other things are around it, and they're very important, and we spend a huge amount of our time as business people, executives in this industry, working on that stuff. But ultimately and thankfully, because that is the irreplaceable thing that we offer, is that moment that you're there experiencing that incredible result with all these other like-minded people. Well, it reminds us really that uh, with all the technology that we have, right, uh, if we had to have a bad game, the technology will not make the turkey fly, right? And so it is enhancing the fan experience, but it is by itself not the fan experience. 
That's um, exactly right. In case That's you're just exactly. tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, uh, Christian Tebisch, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Seth Rabinowitz, who is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Fan Experience, uh, Fan Engagement, pardon me, with the New York Jets. We're talking about fan experiences and fan engagements. Um, in the second half of the show, I will talk about uh, Complexity Gaming as a company who has kind of gone into the virtual world of e-gaming. And so, Seth, that's kind of where I want to transition next in the discussion. So we've talked about the game and keeping the fans connected in the game by having access to amazing statistics, um, sensors, high-speed cameras, and all this good stuff. Um, what other forms of connectivity opportunities are there in the sense of um, can I you know, imagine... Uh, while I'm not in the stadium, being connected to your training grounds, or by before I get onto the stadium, connected to your locker rooms, or where 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 do we go beyond just the the part where the game is live? How yeah, can I you know, it's a very it's an interesting question, and, and again, we've seen fans have uh, an insatiable appetite, not just on game day, match day, but really every day, and certainly in the NFL, you know, there is no off season anymore, and in fact, fan interest sometimes is actually higher in times of the year, say around the draft that we have every year at the end of April, uh, than it is during the season. And so there really is, there, there's some very minor ebbs and flows, but generally fans are interested and want to be connected and want to be consuming content and, and uh, interacting with the team 24-7, 365. So that is another trend that has really emerged over the last decade, 12 to 15 years maybe. And so the amount of content that we produce Sports teams now really are full-fledged media companies, and so the amount of content we're producing every day of the year, original content every day of the year, multi-platform, broadcast television, cable television, social, desktop internet, mobile internet, is really incredible, just the sheer number of hours uh, of content that's being produced. And, and the Jets are probably, you know, just given we're in the New York market, maybe a little bit ahead in terms of that, but that's a trend across our industry, every team to, to some extent. Uh, is doing the same thing. So that that is definitely um, something that's changing. And I think one of the really interesting things there, you know, sort of underneath your question was the ability for the fan to really kind of share the experience of the athlete sort of in real time. And that is, I think, an interesting area where, you know, the established professional sports may have some adjusting to do to stay competitive with emerging things like the esports because from what I've come to see with esports one of the amazing things and I totally understand why it's super appealing to the, uh, the audience is the degree of accessibility of the athletes uh, and you can be watching them on Twitch and chatting with them while they're playing and you can ask them when you're watching them practice you can ask them to teach you how to do their signature move or ask them questions about the last tournament and you'll get an answer and the business that we've all built in the professional established leagues world is not quite that accessible yet. Yeah, it's interesting. So, that was I was just about to head there. Uh, there is connectivity, really. I think of two types of connectivity. There is provide me a broader, uh, richer information feed of what you, the elite athlete, are experiencing, not just during the game, but tell me how my, when you go to the gym, what you're lifting, right. and whether you're eating a pro, having a protein shake after a match or a, a cheeseburger. Uh, so you can feed me more and more of that information. You can do it 365 days in the year. But there's another form of connectivity which is going the other way around, right, where the fan goes back and has some influence, either 
fantasy football, I think, has done amazing things in terms of fans to fans interacting with each other. Right. But I'm just kind of to, to think out of the box for the moment. If the fans could vote on who the what's the next gameplay would be, if the yeah. fans could have an influence on the game, is that is that something that is just totally absurd, or do you see that? I, I, I wouldn't say totally absurd, but I think we're a long <laughs> way off uh, from that. Now, the NFL experimented with that a few years ago at the Pro Bowl. So we're aware of it, and we recognize, I think, as an industry, appropriately, that this is something we need to be responsive to and that these trends are likely to increase, not decrease. We can't ignore these things or hope they go away. Um, but it is going to be very challenging for us to find a way to incorporate that type of sensibility into our our operating system, if you want to say. That is going to be a difficult change to implement. There is still, look, we exist in a world of uh, hyper-competitiveness, and the margin, truly the margin between first and last is razor thin. Sometimes it appears amplified based on the final results, but the experts with a, with a trained eye recognize that it's a few plays here or there, and some of those plays it's a few inches here or there that make the difference between success and failure. And that's, that is a reality. And so around that reality has grown up a um, kind of incredible effort organizationally, culturally, to find any edge within the rules, but any edge possible. And so the notion of kind of opening things up and potentially letting out some information that your opponent could use to their advantage against you is something that's very uh, antithetical right now to the culture of certainly the NFL and I can imagine all the other major professional sports where the dynamic is similar. Uh, these guys work so hard to find any advantage, and so I think, and they guard those advantages very uh, zealously. So the notion of kind of increasing the degree of transparency, or opening things up, or allowing crowdsourcing to you know dictate any decision making, I think that's a long way off, at least in the NFL. So uh, you don't let me vote on the lineup. I, I think I slowly get over that. Well, but you said it, fantasy football, it's by proxy, Yeah, absolutely. Right? So, you have I mean, done this really well. Absolutely. So people, I, think it, I think it satiates some of that appetite and in a way that's also monetizable and, you know, is absolutely. an enormous business unto itself. Um, but I certainly recognize that at some point, you know, somebody who's 12 years old today, in 15 years, when they're right in our sweet spot, is going to say, hey, this is kind of fun, but boy, I wish I could have a little bit more impact on the real deal. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, uh, Christian Tebisch, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Seth Rabinowitz, who is the Senior Vice President of Marketing and Fan Engagement with the New York Jets. So one way of having the uh, an impact, maybe not on the real deal, uh, but the PlayStation, the Xbox, has a parallel universe in which yeah. the NFL or the Bundesliga, the FIFA games, uh, are going really well. Um, tell me more about those blending opportunities. How can you blend the fact that, you know, I, when I play FIFA on the PlayStation, I always play with Bayern Munich. How can you use that knowledge of Christian to customize or contextualize yeah. fan experiences? No, that, that's a great question, and we're, we're seeing that. We've actually just had an experience with that less than a week ago. Last Wednesday, we hosted... The, every team in the NFL is hosting a Madden championship to send one representative to an all-32 team tournament in Orlando at the Pro Bowl in um, the end of January. And so we hosted at our stadium last Wednesday the the Jets championship, four players to, to select one. And these guys know football, and so they, the game is now so realistic, so complex, 
and so um, uh, accurate in terms of its representation of the athlete's various strengths and weaknesses that to be to compete at that very high level, which all these uh, guys were, they really do need to know football. Uh, it's not just knowing how to move the joystick and press the right button. It's understanding the strategy and the fundamentals and how to take advantage of your opponent's weaknesses and all those sorts of things. So that blurring is happening. These games have gotten to the point where you really do have to be a sophisticated uh, student of the sport itself, the real sport itself, in order to transfer that knowledge into this kind of uh, you know, world of pixels. And uh, so, you know, and these guys, they know clock management. They know when to call timeouts. They know when, you know, they, they are knowledgeable. Um, and so I think that you're starting to see some of that blurring. And I can imagine as these games begin to move more and more into a virtual reality presentation where the degree of immersion is even more, uh, is even deeper than it is now. Right now, the, the graphics almost look like broadcast television. If you're, if you're 100 feet back looking at the screen, you would not be able to distinguish of actual broadcast of a real NFL game from the Madden presentation. Only when you get a little closer can you tell the difference. So the next step is to immerse you even fuller. You put the goggles on and the the, the earphones, and then you're completely inside that world, and I think the blurring will become even more. Um, and, you know, could there be things going on in parallel where there's a Madden What we're doing now is we're having it kind of running on a parallel track, but it's not uh, in real time. And there'll be this tournament at the Pro Bowl, but it's not uh, it's the same time the game's being played, but in the future, could you imagine there is the game on the actual field and then thousands, millions of similar matches between the same teams happening among uh, gamers? Sure, I, that I can imagine. And, uh, you know, if you don't like the outcome you're seeing on uh, the real game, maybe you can create a different outcome for yourself using your PlayStation or your Xbox. Now, do the Jets have like a uh, professional e-game? Uh, you mentioned that you're organizing some competitions. Uh, but uh, do you have, like, your own players that are just professional No, gamers? no, no. So we source, we work, this is a partnership between each of the local teams, the, the NFL headquarters office in New York, and then Electronic Arts. And so we source the players through the Madden online community. Obviously, there are millions of people in that community. There were qualifying tournaments that were uh, conducted solely online, you know, person to person. And then you qualified through the ranks, to, and then ultimately when it was the four, um, we brought them, we, we, you know, we, we brought them in, and then one, the winner is going to represent us in Orlando. But no, he, we don't have a permanent affiliation with any of these gamers at this point. Could could you imagine that? Because just if you think about just the demographics of, I think all professional sports have a little bit of uh, an appeal for people like me who are kind of beer drinking guys in the 40s. I mean, I, I don't want to oversimplify this, right? But I think by and large, the young generation is attracted very much to this uh, online, this virtual yes. world. Oh, uh, yeah. To just for a fan engagement perspective, could you imagine hiring the first three professional gamers for, for the for the Jets in the next year? Yeah, it's not. I mean, that's certainly well within the realm of possibility at this point, and we would not be uh, even on that much on the cutting edge. A number of basketball teams have uh, gotten involved to uh, a greater degree. My understanding is that a number of European uh, soccer teams... Soccer as well, yeah, yeah. Uh, many of them across England and the continent. So uh, it's not inconceivable at this point. You know, the interesting thing with esports, and I think the entire industry is grappling with this, is we're trying to wrap our arms around it. Uh, you know, I'm a believer. I don't in any way question or doubt that it's popular and it's it's merely uh, at the beginning and will grow and grow and grow. And I, I totally understand the appeal. And I think they, they, all these things can coexist. I don't view it as a threat per se. It's something that definitely needs to be monitored. 
But it is unclear still in these early days kind of where the centers of gravity are going to be, who, you know, what controls the balance of power. One of the things, you know, the NFL is almost 100 years old. It's a relatively stable institution. We understand how decisions are made. We understand where power emanates from. We understand what the rules and the kind of the, the environment is. I don't think you could say that about esports at this point. So as a business person, you know, it's not entirely clear where to place your, your bets. It's yeah, it's an interesting – it strikes me as a very interesting uh, dilemma, so to say. The, the, the substitution threat comes not from the online NFL, but comes from people playing Call of Duty as, a, as an e-gaming sport, yes. filling the stadium. And, and then suddenly you become – pardon the wording – in that scenario, you would become irrelevant. If these people are having NFL online games, in some sense, you are the source of the content. If anything, you, you, it enhances the value of your, your brand. Yes, yeah, certainly, certainly if, as long as they want to use our intellectual property, absolutely. Yeah, I think you're right. I think Call of Duty or Overwatch, League of Legends. And one thing that's interesting is, you know, as it evolves, if you're really interested in NFL football, there still is a real NFL with real players playing. Likewise, basketball, hockey, baseball, soccer, etc., there's no place that you can go in the real world and watch Overwatch. Or uh, most people would not be interested in the real world version of Call of Duty because <laughs> the, the perils involved. So, um, you know, that, I think it is interesting because it's, it's quite unclear whether people will ultimately gravitate towards these sort of more, you know, fantastical versions of worlds that you could never really access, either because they don't exist or because they're too dangerous or too difficult to to get to versus just a, a kind of a mirroring of something that actually is relatively accessible in the real world. And again, that's just one of the things that's not clear yet how it's all going to net out. If you look thus far, obviously, Call of Duty, League of Legends, and so forth have garnered much more activity, larger playing communities, larger spectator bases. Um, but, you know, maybe between what the NFL is doing with this Madden thing, which has been very successful, we had tremendous numbers on our streams last week. Um, and what the NBA is doing, which is, you know, arguably even more um, involved, uh, it remains to be seen. We have an incredible marketing machine. We have an enormous built-in audience behind us. And so if we can deliver all those resources, you know, I like our chances as well. I think we have a lot we can bring to this. You have a lot to bring to this. Says Thess Robinitz uh, of the New York Jets, thank you for being on the show. Uh, we need to take a short break now. Uh, when we are coming back from the break, I will welcome our second guest for today, uh, who is Carl Bautista, Vice President and General Manager of Complexity Gaming, an interesting company where, uh, again, we see more and more of that conversion between the digital gaming and the uh, traditional fan experience in the stadium. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow. I'm Christian Terbisch, and this is Business Radio by, or by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We'll be right back after the break. You're listening to Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. Here again is Christian Terbish. Welcome back from the break. I'm Christian Terbish, and this is Work of Tomorrow on Business Radio here at Series XM. We've been talking about professional sports and uh, a small element of professional sport that is growing rapidly now, however, is uh, not people like Dirk Nowitzki or Kobe Bryant. But a new sport type of athlete is emerging, and that is one that is replacing the gym with the PlayStation. So we're going to talk about gaming, online gaming and professional gaming as potentially a new profession of elite athletes emerging. To explore this topic, I want to welcome Kyle Bautista, Vice President and General Manager of Complexity Gaming here on the show. Kyle, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me on today. 
Kyle, if you had half an hour to kill right now, rather than speaking with me, what is your favorite video game that you would enjoy doing? Uh, uh, I think my favorite video game I'm playing right now is uh, Rocket League, our take on soccer. You take on soccer. So, so tell me more about Rocket League. Uh, so I, I'm not a big video gamer short of FIFA. Uh, mm-hmm. is, is Rocket League part of FIFA? Is it a competing platform? So actually, um, FIFA is hugely popular in its own right. The traditional sports simulator, you know, you're actual out there on the pitch. Rocket League is a different take on soccer. It's played in a 3v3 format. And instead of being a person kicking around a ball, You're in a rocket-powered car. You're driving up walls and on ceilings, but the at the end of the day, you're still dribbling, you're still passing to your teammates and trying to put shots on goal. The Olympic Committee is, my understanding, uh, eSports were featured in the Rio Summer Olympics, and there's more and more discussion uh, to what extent it should be like, become like a full-fledged Olympic sports because the skill mastery is, 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 is amazing in many ways. Um, what do you think? Yeah, so we did see at uh, Rio, it was kind of a sideshow event, and people were looking at it for 24. Um, we're not exactly sure. We we kind of consider ourselves our own little world right now within esports, and the Olympics has its own connotations and everything that comes with that. But as far as if there's similar skill sets or not, the amount of training that goes into a professional esports athlete becoming a top player in the world, it's very similar. You're going to be training 10, 12, 14, 16 hours a day. And of course, 300 days a year minimum, if you're looking to be the top of your craft. So very similar in terms of that uh, skill ceiling. It's a famous 20,000 hour rule, right? It doesn't matter whether you want to play a piano, run a triathlon or play a video game. I guess 20,000 hours is what you have to put in to reach mastery. Something along that level. And then you got to go grandmaster after that. Does it matter to you whether the Olympic uh, Committee thinks that you are a sport? I mean, the way you answered my first question, and sometimes you said, like, well, you are living, you, you have your own world, you're doing well, and so what yeah. the folks in Lausanne say is not really central to your future? Yeah, exactly. It would provide a certain sense of validation, but it's validation that I think our industry could have used 10 years ago. But right now, I just don't think that most people like myself really care about that. We have something that we're truly passionate about and that we've been able to build a massive global community around. It doesn't really matter what they say. We're doing our thing and we're happy where we are with their sport or without it. Tell us what it takes to be a great e-gamer, just in terms of the career path you were mentioning earlier on, the hard training, six, eight, ten hours a day over 300 days a year. Um, how how do you become an athlete? I mean, I, I've kind of, I think I understand a bit about professional sports athletes. <laughs> how do you become an e-gamer? Do you, uh, starting early, is there sure. like, do you, do you do like physical activities on top of your gaming activities to just keep the brain healthy, uh, fingers sure. moving? Uh, t- tell us a little bit more about like the, uh, the, the three-year tra- training development uh, plan for a young listener who wants to become an e-athlete. Okay. So it's not as set out as it is in most professional sports. You're not picked up by a pro club scouting team at 10 years old. You're not playing little league uh, baseball, anything like that. The amateur side of things is much less developed. And that's one of the things that we're focusing on as an industry right now is making sure that there is a more clear path to pro. But right now, you see people from all walks of life, um, starting probably about age 16 to age 20, 22. You don't really see people older than that 
getting their very first shot. And it's oftentimes people that just pick up a game, find up that they have, one, a large aptitude for that game, and two, a lot of passion for it. And then past that, it's a function of being able to put in the hours, being able to not necessarily work hard, but work smart in addition to working hard so that you can actually make those small improvements. Then you have things like networking, getting seen at smaller amateur or semi-pro events, uh, being able to play in a combine for the games that offer those kinds of things, and getting your first you know, small contract and working yourself up from there. So at the risk of dating myself, I remember my first video game was called the Olympic Decathlon. It was uh -huh. on the Apple II in the 1980s. And the <laughs> way that you make the athlete move was very quickly move with your right and left finger on the two cursor keys. And the faster you could move, the faster that person would then run the 100-meter dash, which uh, killed the computer keyboard but was a lot of fun. Um, so do, do the skills that an e-athlete has, do they, do they transfer from one game to another because they're just certain cognitive or even motorical skills uh, that are just universal? Or is there something like, you know, you become a basketball player or a football player and, and those kind of those skills are so much, if you want to be successful, they're so much dedicated to one sport? Sure. So the way that I think about it is take somebody like Michael Jordan. He was an incredible athlete and perhaps the greatest of all time in basketball, but he was still exceptional as a baseball player. It's similar to that in esports. Somebody that's very fluid in one game or genre is going to be quite proficient in most areas, but they're not going to be quite that tip-top professional level. You have some of the same kind of critical thinking Uh, the ability of your intelligence within the game and being able to make those snap decision processes in addition to very quick reflexes, the ability to execute a huge number of commands at once, communication skills are very important. So those all translate, but the individual games can be quite different. So you're not always going to be able to see one player just pick another game up very quickly. Oftentimes if somebody wants to transfer from one professional game to another, which is quite rare, um, it's going to take them a couple years to get back to the top. So for games like uh, Call of Duty or League of Legends, you're digitizing combat, which is a virtual experience of which you, the real experience you hope you would never reach, versus for other games like FIFA or NFL, there's a, a real sport that is kind of the, the thing that you're digitizing. Do you think about games for which there is a real sport and real professional athletes differently from uh, the, the, the combat sports or, or other uh, the combat games or other games uh, that are different? Hmm. So I'm not, I'm not quite sure if I'm understanding. So let me reframe me. that, uh, you know, if you okay. play FIFA or NFL, you're playing, uh, I play, when I play FIFA, I play with Bayern Munich and there is a Bastian Schweinsteiger in the old days. Now the guy plays, of course, in Chicago. There, there's, a, there's a Manuel Neuer in the goal. There are real people and there's a real club. And in some sense, the game for me is there's an affinity to the real event. Versus when you're doing a game that is driving a tank or shooting a soldier, sure, uh, the sure. affinity to reality is, is a different one. I mean, you hope as a gamer you would never get into that situation. Uh, did you think of these kind of sports games differently from the, the more the fighting games? Or are they just all the skill? Yeah, I mean, they're, they're very much so skill, but oftentimes... 
uh, somebody that's playing League of Legends, you might not know why they're playing League of Legends. They might be playing that uh, because they, they like the graphics or because their buddy played it. But oftentimes, like you said, for somebody that plays FIFA or Madden, they're playing that because they have a huge amount of experience with that traditional sport um, outside of the game. And then they're looking to reenact that, as you said, within the game. So there's there's certainly a fundamental difference there. But at the end of the day, they're all gamers. Everybody's looking to have some kind of experience that they're not able to have in real life. And whether that's being a professional athlete or being a mage that can cast spells, you're, you're all looking for some kind of uh, – competition some kind of release and experience you wouldn't otherwise have so it's about competition it's about game it's about having fun together as a social community Um, tell us a little bit more about the business or revenue model in terms of uh, online or e-gaming how do i as a professional gamer make my money so as a professional gamer right now the primary way in which you make money is you sound like an with an organization like complexity gaming who we represent we in turn represent uh, sponsors we help on the side of merchandising we negotiate deals for you to play in tournaments leagues all that kind of stuff so you end up getting salary you get performance-based bonuses for placements at events you get cuts of the merch appearance fees uh pricing revenue splits all that kind of stuff and then in addition to that You have things like prizing from tournaments or leagues that you're participating in. So there's a good deal of money to be made in that. Uh, Sometimes outrageous money if you're in games like Dota 2, where an individual player can earn 2 or $3 million a year just on the prizing side uh, if they were to do exceptionally well. And then beyond that, some players have personal sponsorships or endorsements or even their own line of clothing or line of gear. In case you're just tuning in, you're listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School. I'm your host, uh, Christian Tevish, and I have the pleasure of chatting with Carl Bautista, who is Vice President and General Manager of Complexity Gaming. We're talking about a small profession, athletes, uh, but uh, one that I think many of us aspire to be one, and we're comparing the uh, career or the development of a digital athlete, a gamer, versus an Olympic athlete, a, a sportsman. And uh, if, if you haven't heard it, it uh, you know, uh, Kyle just mentioned that the, some of the top players are making millions of dollars uh, as, as a take-home pay. Um, where does this money come from? Is, is that uh, provided by like a Ubisoft or the, the big game developers to kind of draw more people to their games? Is this, are there entrance sure. fees to the tournaments? Uh, you at Complexity Gaming are, uh, seem to be the platform or the, the mid, middle maker who make these markets happen. Tell us how that works. Yeah, in some cases, we are the people that uh, essentially provide, we open the gates that are set there from a publisher or a tournament organizer. So in the case of the International in Dota 2, which I was just talking about, which last year had over a $24 million prize pool, um, $1.6 million of that is provided by Valve, who creates the game. The rest of that over $22 million is actually crowdfunded through the community, Valve and the community create in-game items for your avatar so your character can wear a new hat, essentially. And then by sales of that, in addition to a whole bunch of other things within the game, 25% of those sales go to funding the cries pool. So in the end, the players bought over $100 million worth of merchandise. 25% of that went to the prize pool, which then enables the the esports pros in that game to make absurd amounts of money. So 
crowdfunding uh, points to the money coming out of the community as opposed to a, a big sponsor. Is the community then engaging? Uh, I've seen in, in careers kind of big stadiums full of people just watching a game in a stadium. There's, I think that there's a nice social oh, yeah. dimension to that. Um, is for you, is it a typical fan watching these things in a stadium or uh, watching them on, on the couch at home on a big screen TV? So you're always going to have more people watching at home, but that's just a function of having to travel into a specific area. So a lot of these big events, uh, I believe there was over 30 events in the last year that had more than 10,000 person live attendance in a stadium. There's a couple that were over uh, 20, and there was one that was even over 60. That was the League of Legends World Championships in uh, Korea a couple of years ago. So you have a lot of people watching there in person in the stadium. But for reference, a, an event that's going to get 20,000 people in the stadium, most of the time you're talking two, three, four million unique viewers at home. And uh, sometimes quite a few more concurrents that just tune, to, tune in to check it out. That's interesting, right? It's, it's somewhat similar to soccer where the people in the stadium are almost like the backdrop for the the real yeah. event, the, the people watching it from home. Same with the soccer comparison. If, if I just think about kind of the Bundesliga or the big, uh, the Premier League, those are multi-billion dollar organizations even within one country. Um, if you would estimate, or I, I don't know how, how good the data is that you have here, um, if you would estimate the relationship between the, the money that is flowing around in e-gaming versus professional sports, Is this still like a one to ten in favor of the good old sports? Is that ratio even bigger? What is your estimate? Um, I think that one to ten is actually mm, maybe one to twenty is probably a little bit closer right now, um, and that would be comparing a top team to a top team within the space. Um, so esports is certainly much younger. Um, The industry is not always able to tap into the sponsor dollars as effectively, but that's changing quickly. And uh, you're just now getting the involvement of a lot of the traditional sports teams that are actually enabling the teams to greatly increase their brand equity to bring those brand valuations up. So you're going to see that change very fast in the next two to five years. Yeah, it's interesting I, that you mentioned that. I noticed that one of uh, the professional teams in soccer has now has started their own kind of uh, uh, team of e-players, and they would play on FIFA to, again, support the brand of the, the traditional sport. Uh, is that, are those partnerships that you see more and more happening now? Yeah, absolutely. Um, in fact, Complexity Gaming, our organization, just uh, last month we announced our purchased by Mr. Jerry Jones of the Dallas Cowboys. So I'm actually out here in Frisco now where the Cowboys are stationed and uh, our entire operation is moving out here to be closely associated with Jerry Jones's brand. So it's interesting that you have then the connection to, uh, I mentioned Dirk Nowitzki earlier on in the show, so the, the Dirk is very, very close to you now. Um, what sure. are the opportunities for kind of co-branding or basically making kind of rather than competing with e-games versus real basketball, have both of them kind of rise together and uh, win together? Absolutely. And that's one of the reasons that uh, a lot of these traditional sports brands are looking at esports is 
you've got the demographic that's certainly skewing a lot younger. When you're looking at uh, football or American football, baseball, your demographics are skewing older. Almost all of those are 40-plus. Basketball is the only one that's keeping it below 40 for the average age of your viewer, whereas eSports' average age of viewership right now, I believe, is 24. So you're getting somebody that's a lot younger and might be more effective to actually target sponsors to. In addition, you have the cross-branding ability, so having players show up and do signings at the actual uh, traditional sports events or maybe having a star player from the traditional team show up and do some content with your esports teams. There's a lot of opportunities there that both ourselves and other organizations are going to be taking uh, pretty good advantage of. So part in that sense of part of the e-gaming is to just... uh rejuvenate the somewhat shrinking market of professional sports just because of demographic reasons, just bringing in a new generation who is just spending more time on the Internet and on the PlayStation and have them engaged? Yeah, that's one part of it. I mean, in addition, we consider esports to be a new sport for a new digital generation, and we expect that uh, esports is going to be extremely big over the next 10, 20 years. Um, Already you see esports viewership eclipsing things like the NHL and the MLB here in the United States. Um, So it's not far off to say that it could be doing the same for uh, European football or for uh, American football here in the States. It's something that's just in its infancy now and is really starting to take off. And a lot of these very acute businessmen, they're realizing this. So that gets me into my last set of uh, questions here, Kyle. Um, I mean, I know that predictions are always uh, a fool's errand, right? And I, I will certainly not hold you accountable about making a prediction, coming calling you in 10 years from now and say, like, hey, Kyle, you promised me something else. But the way you're describing it and, and certainly looking at the momentum, uh, e-gaming is, is on the rise. Uh, so uh, will there be more or, or less uh, e-gamers in 10 years from now? Uh, more. That, that, that seems like an easy one. How, how about, will we, will we consume more gaming in terms of, will, if, if I add up all the hours I watch between sports and video games, is, is, is that uh, overall growing or am I substituting real sports consumption, viewership, fan experience with uh, now watching some uh, Call of Duty games and, 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 and some e-games? Uh, are they competing against each other for the same sure. share of wallet or is, is that category growing together? I I do think that they are actually competing against one another in some extent. With that being said, I think that the amount of hours that we're dedicating toward the general entertainment, competition entertainment, so combining traditional sports with esports, I think that's growing a little bit as well. But you you certainly do have to take one slice of the pie for each of them there. So I think that esports is going to start to get a larger piece of that pie over the next uh, five years, and it certainly already is cutting into the traditional sports watching time with uh, over 385 million esports viewers currently. And if you think about the future of uh, the, the the Dallas Cowboys acquisition that you just mentioned earlier on, um, what is give us a vision or give us a dream for basketball 2030? I mean, how how will I not recognize the game anymore? What will, what will blow me away in, in, in 13 years from now? 13 years from now for the NBA? Well, for, for my fan experience as a basketball kind of interested person, 
what sure. will be different in my life? Will I be watching some e-games? Will I be in the stadium with, uh, with, uh, with virtual reality glasses on and I can switch back and forth <laughs> between? Well, I mean, there's, as you mentioned, right, there's a real synergy opportunity, and I'm just trying to imagine the storyboard or the use case of how we can take full potential about that interface. Absolutely. Um, I mean, it's hard to speak to that sport. It's not necessarily my expertise, but there is absolutely the possibility. You talked about watching it with virtual reality glasses, being able to get that 360-degree sphere view from the middle of the court, being able to watch from the eyes of each individual player, or you might even see the integration of esports in there as well, where as a, uh, a pregame or maybe even concurrently, each team has their NBA 2K, or excuse me, yeah, NBA 2K team that would play, you know, when you have the Pistons playing the Celtics, you have your your five NBA 2K players that are playing concurrently with the guys that are out there on the court. Maybe you have two leagues that run simultaneously. Who knows? And could I finish the game that I didn't finish on television? I still could finish that on the PlayStation and uh, finish my, my, my own version of when the Eagles lost last night? That is uh, one of the appeals or one of the, well, in that, in that case, the uh, the detriments if your team's losing. <laughs> well, thank you so much, uh, Karl Bautista, Vice President and General Manager of Complexity Gaming. Thank you for being on the show. Um, we have reached the end of the show today, and that means it's time for us to summarize and reflect a little bit of, of what we have seen. In the first half of the show, I talked to Seth Rabinowitz, the Director of Fan Engagement at the New, New York Jets. And again, I find it fascinating to see uh, kind of the incumbent here, the existing um, providers of fan experiences, namely the professional sports companies, uh, live uh, side to side with this new branch of uh, the, the industry, an emerging category of e-gaming. And I found it interesting how then Kyle pointed out how, how e-gaming is really not meant to be uh, necessarily a sport. It's skill-wise, it is a sport. Um, but whether they're Olympic or not, they are growing dramatically. And I think the growth in technology, the new business models, point to an amazing opportunity of, 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 of synergy there between uh, the cooperation of the traditional basketball, soccer, football companies and on the other hand, the, the, the new e-gaming opportunities. I think those two together can create amazing fan experiences, and there's certainly more to watch. That's all I have to say for today. You have been listening to Work of Tomorrow here on Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School on Sirius XM. We hope you can join us again this coming Monday at 5 p.m. Eastern. I'm Christian Tevish on behalf of all of us here at the Wharton School. Thank you for listening. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu. Thank you.